0: Well, they're interesting lyrics, aren't they? Blessed be the ties that bind. I wonder what kind of images that that language evokes for you this morning when you think about it and when you sing it. Have you thought much about just what the ties are that bind you? Or maybe the kind of things that you feel tied or bound to today. What kind of ties do you think of as blessed? Blessed. And what kind of ties might you describe with other language? You know, depending on the context in which we use those words, those words can conjure up very different images and pictures in our minds. On the one hand, there are ties that bind us in very good ways. They make us feel safe and secure, settled. But then there are other ways of being bound that leave us with a very different kind of feeling. Trapped restless, uneasy, powerless, or maybe just tired. And as you think about your own life this morning, I wonder, what are the ties that you're the most aware of? And how many of those ties are of the kind that you would call blessed? You know that many of us live. The sheer number of things that we're involved in With that all going on in our lives, most of us know better than we probably would like to know what it is to have multiple crisscrossing intertwined ties that bind us to many different things and many different activities. Things that can at times, like kind of a wad of kite string that's kind of fallen off the spindle, had this happen to you before, they can get into some rather interesting tangles and knots that can be pretty challenging to try to work out. And like that wad of kite string, if you've ever had to work with that. Sometimes, in spite of our best efforts, it's not always all that easy to figure out which one of those knots in the strand you need to keep working with, and which ones you just need to cut and let go. And when we're feeling particularly stressed or fatigued, or when the levels of pain and frustration get too high, we don't always make the best or wisest choices when it comes to figuring out what we need to hang on to and the things we just need to cut and forget about. Well, you know, as it turns out, the scriptures also talk about uh, ties that bind in some rather interesting and intriguing ways. When you look in Luke chapter 11, about verse 46, you find a little story of Jesus talking to some religious leaders of his day, and he says this, Woe to you, Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Which sounds to me like an example of ties that bind in ways that are exhausting and troubling and that drain the life from us. Not exactly the kind of ties you would regard as blessed. And yet, when you go over to Hosea chapter 11 and verse 4, where you find God being portrayed as a spouse seeking for the one that they love, you read words like this. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. An image of ties that bind in very wonderful and very freeing kind of ways. And so it would seem even in the scriptures that while not all ties that bind are experienced as blessed, there clearly are some ties that are experienced that way. One kind seems to drain the life from us. The other kind lifts and energizes and gives the life back again. And so we might, while we might understandably resist the kind of ties that make us feel weary and fatigued, that may come from being bound to the wrong kind of things or simply to the sheer quantity of too many things that otherwise might be good things. At least in our own honest moments, our most honest moments, we would probably have to admit that there are still some kinds of ties that we are very hungry for, the kind of ties that bind us in rich and healthy and life-giving ways, ways that we would call blessed, Okay, then, what are these ties that bind us in genuinely satisfying ways that satisfy the hunger and don't just cover it over with something else? Where do you find them? How do we form them? What are the settings in which those ties happen? And in the midst of all the things that clamor for our attention and crowd into our lives, trying to fill in all those little blank spots in our calendars, are the kinds of ties that we are the most hungry for, the ones that are getting the kind of attention that they need. It's an interesting little book that was written a couple of years ago by a fellow by the name of Randy Furzee called The Connecting Church. And in this book, uh, Furzee offers a description of the typical American family that I think gives us a glimpse of at least one of the reasons why forming these kinds of ties sometimes can be pretty challenging for us. I'd like to highlight for you just a few excerpts from his description here. This is what he writes. To all outward appearances, Bob and Karen Johnson have a wonderful life. A nice house in a respectable neighborhood. Two great kids, one boy, one girl. Good health, good jobs, an adequate income, and a sense of mission and service about the jobs that they do. And yet, if you were to probe just a little below the surface you would find indications that not all is as well as it appears to be. While they rarely voice it to anyone, there is a low-level but increasing sense of isolation, tiredness, and a feeling that their lives are getting more and more out of control. On a typical day, Bob and Karen both rise at 6 o'clock in the morning. Bob leaves by 6.45 in order to beat the rush hour traffic. He hits the garage door opener, gets into the car, and as he pulls out of the driveway, he spots his neighbor outside who's putting out the trash, and he waves as he drives by. And as he drives away down his street, he remembers that it has been two years since this new neighbor moved into the neighborhood. He still can't remember his name, and he doesn't know the last time they had a conversation. Well, after the usual rush to get the kids ready and out the door on time, Karen gets ready to drop the kids off at school on her way to work. On their way out the driveway, one of the kids announces that they have forgotten their lunch. So, seeing their other neighbor, one of the few retired people in the neighborhood, who is out now beginning her yard work for the day, rather than let the forgetful child out of the car to run back in the house and get the lunch, she backs up back into the garage again to allow the child to get out and go get their lunch. She knows that if she doesn't do that and pauses in front of the house, she may get involved with a conversation with her neighbor, which she really wishes she could do, but she knows that if she does, she and the kids will be late. And so with the lunch retrieved, she speeds back out of the garage again, automatic door closing behind her, and drops the kids off at school just as the bell is ringing. Both Bob and Karen put in a full day at work and then rush to pick the kids up from practice, music lessons, or some other after-school activity and finally get home about 6 o'clock. This initiates the usual flurry of activity, retrieving the mail, getting ready for dinner, getting started on homework. On a good night, everybody's eating by 7 o'clock. Then there are the dishes to clean up, maybe a load of laundry to start, homework to be finished and checked. And by 9.30, half hour late, but it was the best they could do, the kids are in bed. And at 9.45, both Bob and Karen finally sit down on the couch, too tired to do much of anything else. They exchange the basic information about the day, maybe catch a couple minutes of the news on television, look over some of the work they brought home. And when they finally get to bed about 11.30, they are grateful that things have gone as well as they have. This is one of the easier days. No varsity games, no evening meetings or programs, no other involvement in any one of a number of things their families are involved in that would have made the evening far more complicated than it was. And they settle into sleep. Weekends, of course, are often occupied with church or school activities. Catch up on homework, pick up around the house, take care of the yard, or maybe just catch up on whatever else didn't get done during the week. But there's often not a lot of open time to just be with each other, or with family, or with friends. They do occasionally do things with others, but schedules are complicated and challenging, and finding time to just be with each other and form a sense of community doesn't seem to come very easily. Strangely, Bob and Karen keep concluding that this was an unusual week and that next week will be better. However, after eight years of living this lifestyle that some would call the American dream, they have had about 416 weeks that they would classify as unusual. They attend church regularly. Their kids are in church school and involved in a lot of great stuff. They're actually around people quite a lot. And yet in many ways, they still feel very much alone. Interesting description, isn't it? Anything there that resonates with parts of your life, or maybe the life of some people you know? They are a family bound by ties to many great things, but not to many people in the way that they would really like to be. What they long for is not more shared activity, but a sense of genuine community where people are bound together by ties that really are blessed. Where they experience a sense of being loved and accepted, not for the contributions they make or the things they're involved in, but simply for who they are. A place where they can talk about what's going on in their lives and where God is in the midst of all of that stuff that's happening. And maybe where God seems to be directing and leading them a place where they can discover other travelers who are on the same journey they're on and know that there's somebody else walking alongside of them. All of which, of course, is what being a part of a church community is supposed to be all about. And when we're at our best, that's the kind of community that we are when we gather here on Sabbath morning to worship. But as much as our time together on Sabbath morning might support and celebrate and maybe give opportunity to express what it means to be a community like that. Sabbath morning services by themselves are not going to do it. However rich and meaningful they may be, they are not the primary places that that kind of community is formed. It doesn't happen just here. Bob, Karen, and their family attend church on a regular basis. They're involved, but in some significant ways they're still very much alone. And I think it would probably be fair to say that so are a good many of us. In fact, when it comes to the actual forming of community, it may very well be the conversations that take place after the service that are as significant as anything else that goes on during the service. Well, okay then, how does this kind of community happen? Where does it come from? Or to return to our earlier question this morning, How do we form those ties that bind us together in rich and meaningful ways? The kind that we're really looking for. What is the kind of community that Jesus calls us to? What I'd like to do with you this morning is just take a couple minutes to explore that with you. And notice the kind of community that Jesus actually called his disciples to. To come and to be a part of. And the kind of community that I think he still invites us to today. Now, of course, when you think about Jesus calling his disciples, one of the problems is, is that the first picture that comes to many minds is the story that we've all been told since we were in cradle roll, of Jesus walking along by the Sea of Galilee one afternoon and encountering his disciples there. And as that story often gets told, it goes something like this. Jesus is walking along the shore, and there he sees Peter and Andrew and James and John had a hard night of fishing, and they're there kind of mending their nets along the shore, And you see Jesus coming, and without even slackening his pace, he calls out in a way that sort of has this feel of an altar call about it. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And of course, they drop everything that they're doing. They spring to their feet, No questions asked, no bit of hesitation at all, despite the fact that they hardly know who this guy is. And they go off and follow Jesus. You kind of get to have this charismatic, motivational speaker who appears on the scene, and poof, instant discipleship. Now, I don't know about you, but that understanding of the story has always left me a bit puzzled and troubled, because certainly that is not the way that it works in my life, and it doesn't seem to work that way for very many other people that I know either, at least not in a way that sustains very well over time. And so it was very helpful to me when I discovered that that particular characterization of the story and of what happened there that afternoon was not entirely accurate. In fact, by itself, it gives you kind of a flawed, incomplete picture of what really took place. As it turns out, by the time this incident by the Sea of Galilee actually took place, these disciples had been with Jesus for quite a while. They already knew Jesus quite well, and in fact, they had been following him for about a year at that point as part of a small community of people that had already been formed. This was not the beginning of their journey in following Jesus, but something that was growing out of a story that was already in progress among a people who were already on a journey together. And how and where that journey actually did begin is recorded for us by John in the first chapter of his gospel, and it begins right around verse 35. And if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd like to invite you to go there with me for just a couple moments. The story begins about verse 35 in John chapter 1, and it's here that you see Jesus as he forms this first group of followers, this first group of disciples. In verse 35, you have John the Baptist to his preaching, and Jesus is coming, he's been baptized, and then one day, John the Baptist points the disciples to Jesus, he says, here is Jesus, the Lamb of God, and then we pick up the story in verse 37. Here's what happens. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? It's interesting that one of the first things that Jesus does when we find ourselves being drawn towards him is to help us clarify what it is that we're actually looking for. And for some of us, that takes a little while to work it out. But for these first followers, it surfaces right away. Listen to what they say. They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Where are you staying? You see, it was not something that they wanted or were looking for. Rabbi, where are you staying, they said. And then verse 39, come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where it was he was staying. And they spent the day with him it wasn't just an answer to a question or some important bit of information that they wanted and jesus invited them to come and just be with him for the entire day well notice then what happens the next day andrew simon peter's brother verse 40 here was one of the two who jesus who had heard what john the baptist had said and who had followed jesus and the first thing andrew did was to find his brother simon and tell him we have found the messiah that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. He didn't teach him, he didn't instruct him, he just brought him. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John, and you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Interesting, isn't it, that after spending this day with Jesus, Andrew goes out and invites Peter to come and spend some time and join them. And I think it's significant that it's in the context of this little group setting that Jesus is able to give to Peter a very powerful gift. Peter hears for the first time from Jesus exactly what his name really is, which was the beginning of an incredible journey for Peter, for over the next three and a half years he would begin to discover who it was that he really was and what was really going on in his life. Well, let's notice what happens the next day. Jesus apparently had also invited Philip to come along and be a part of the group. And we read in verse 45 what happens here. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can any good thing come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. Come and see. In response to Nathaniel's initial resistance to the whole idea, Philip didn't whip out his Bible and give him a study. He simply invited him to come and see. To come and be with them as they were with Jesus. Which, by the way, is the original and perhaps the most powerful method of evangelism recorded in scripture. And it's still the one that works the best. Okay, it was into that setting of this small group of a community of believers. Actually, just a small group that had formed around Jesus and the place where Jesus was staying that Jesus called his first disciples to come, to spend time, and just to be. And then for the next three and a half years, Jesus continued to invest heavily in that small group of disciples as they met together and shared his story and their story with each other, all the while being formed and shaped individually and as a community of people into the kind of people that Jesus was inviting them to become. Now, of course, that's not to say that Jesus wasn't very deeply and personally involved in the lives of lots of other people. He was. He was in lots of other settings. He interacted with lots and lots of other people in lots of different ways. But it is significant, I think, that the setting in which he called his disciples to come and to dwell, the place where he nurtured their growth and helped them become who they were that he wanted them to be, was the setting of a small group. That shared deeply and significantly not only Jesus' journey, but their own individual journeys together, even though they didn't always understand what was going on. And it was in the context of that small group, where they could ask lots of questions, where they could make lots of mistakes, where they didn't always get things right, that the basis of the community of what was going to become the Christian church was actually formed. That's where the leaders were developed and grown. And because they remained in the presence of Jesus, both during the time of his actual physical presence with them, and afterwards, whenever two or more were gathered in his name, seeking to follow him, trying to allow him to take the lead, Jesus told them that they would be bound together with ties that even the gates of hell could not prevail against. That's what he was doing with that group. You know, I still believe that that is the kind of community that is still very much at the heart of what Jesus wants to grow in us. But the truth is is there are no shortcuts and there are no quick easy recipes and no spiritual quick fixes to get there. The kind of community that Jesus talks about here is not one that develops on the fly as we rush from one thing to the next. It doesn't even come out of great inspirational programs or worship services. It happens only as we're willing to take the time to be with him and then to invest ourselves and our lives and our time in each other. Something that we do as friends and as families and as groups of believers that gather together just to share that journey. No matter how tech, high-tech, no matter how inspirational that we get, There simply are no shortcuts to relationships and to genuine community. And those are the things that we're really hungry for. And all of that means that if we're really serious about being that kind of community, that we're going to need to be willing to take the time to allow it to happen. It may mean that we need to make some long needed adjustments in our schedules. It may mean that we need to consciously protect and provide relational space just to be with people. We don't have to. And if we don't, we will continue to remain hungry. And you know, that would be very sad because we are literally surrounded with all that we need for that to happen each other. And when we gather together in His name, He promises that He will be there in the midst of us. You don't have to go very far to get started. In fact, you might not even have to look much farther than your family at dinner table at night, if you still meet for dinner at night. You might not have to look any farther than a Sabbath school class or a circle of friends that might meet occasionally for lunch or who could meet occasionally for lunch. We are literally surrounded by opportunities where we could begin to experience community again. You might even want to think carefully about what Gary was talking about a little while this morning. He talks about some of the small groups that are forming in our church that you might want to be a part of. You may want to form one of your own. Many are the ties that bind us to all kinds of things. The question is how about the kind that are really blessed and that bind us together in wonderful and freeing ways? Are those the ones that we would like? A number of years ago, there was a a song that was written by Ken Medema that, uh, in his own unique kind of way, poses that question to us this morning, and Jeannie and Ken are going to provide that for us this morning. I'd like to invite them to come on out, And as we take a few moments just to listen together and reflect a bit on the song that they're singing, we'd just like you to kind of sense what it is that God may be asking you as well.
1: again the social role. If I want to eat the bread of life, the taste may cause me pain, and I may decide that it's easy the truth of sight away. How will I read my face, the mirrors in front of me? How will I read my face? Do I intend to see things in the light of day? got nothing more to lose. If I want to count the cost of walking in the way, I may reach the sad conclusion that it's just too much to pay.
0: Father in heaven, we are grateful this morning for the ties that do bind our hearts to you and to each other. And that really is what we're doing here and why we stay.